Welcome to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast, brought to you by DonorSearch, the show that takes you inside the lives of thought leaders in fundraising and philanthropy. I'm your host, Jay Frost. Our guest today is Linda Wise McNay, a veteran leader of the fundraising field. After leading development efforts in higher and secondary education, the arts, human services, and faith-based organizations, she founded Our Fundraising Search, where she and her colleagues have served more than 175 clients with strategies in campaigns, governance, and recruiting top fundraising talent. She is the author of several books, including Fundraising for Churches, Fundraising for Schools, Fundraising for Museums, a children's book entitled The Adventures of Philanthropy, and her November 2021 release, Fundraising for All, What Every Nonprofit Leader Should Know. We caught up with her at her office in Atlanta. But let me just start by asking you about your birthplace, Georgetown, Kentucky. Tell, ah. me, tell me about Georgetown. Well, I am from Kentucky, and I am so proud of that. I was born in Georgetown, but moved about 20 minutes away and actually grew up in Lexington. And that's the heart of the bluegrass. Picture horse farms, beautiful countryside. So even though I've lived in Atlanta 30 years, if anybody asks me where I'm from, I never say Georgia. I say Kentucky. I'm really proud of that. And all my family is still there. And so you were born in Georgetown. How big is Georgetown? Uh, you know, I'm not even sure how many people there, but what's interesting uh, to bookend my story is my mother moved back there a few years ago after my father passed away. And so did my sister and my aunt. And they live in a little row of townhouses. And when I go home, it's very festive because the whole family can gather and it's really great. So the, it's, it's where the horse park is located. The, and that's where the um, what is that? <laughs> there's the Kentucky Horse Park. If you were to visit there, it's like mm -hmm. a museum. Much of it is outdoors, but they have horses from around the world. They hosted the World Equestrian Event. Mm. So for people like me who are interested in horses anyway, I never had one. I always wanted one. So I just appreciate them. Um, we went to the World Equestrian Event and saw all the different types of horses and racing. My very favorite was people who did ballet jumping on and off horses as they went around in a circle. Oh, wow. It was incredible. Uh, you know, I don't know who needs more training for that. The horses or the people. It sounds pretty incredible. Well, I've never seen anything quite like it. So no. I'm really glad. It was, it's like the Olympics for horses, right? right? <laughs> yes. And they're riders. So you said you never owned a horse, but it sounds like mm -hmm. that's an early memory. Did you go to that event from early on in your life? Well, they, they move it around every few mm -hmm. years. They do have the Rolex event, which is a big horse um, activity annually. But the world equestrian event moves around the world. So mm -hmm. it was only in Kentucky once, to my knowledge. And oh. I purposely went home for that, uh, just like the Olympics were in Atlanta once. Sure. But the horse races are in Lexington at mm -hmm. Keeneland, and they run every April and October. And I always have to go home for a visit during that time or I get homesick. And then, of course, the Derby is... Right. in Louisville. And I've been to that a couple of times. And when I can't go, I always throw a derby party in Atlanta for my friends. Really? What, what is that like? Well, we watch horse races all day long until the big event. And mm -hmm. the horse race is really only two minutes long. So you spend a whole day. <laughs> I, I cook something called burgoo, which has all different kinds of meat and vegetables in it. It cooks all day. And I serve bourbon and um, all kinds of festive food and drink. And it's a tradition. We wear hats. The girls, the ladies wear hats and dress up. Well, the hats, the hats are kind of famous, at least yes. for uh, those of us in the rest of the country who hear about it and see, see the pictures. Now you didn't, um, you didn't have a horse, but have you ridden? Do you ride? Oh yes, I have. And I go horseback riding when I go on vacation or to the beach I'm not a great rider because I haven't had enough practice. My, a friend of mine had a horse when she was young and I used to go to the barn with her every day after school. And that was fine until she broke her arm. And then my mom wouldn't let me go. So. Oh, 
So there you go. Well, obviously, even things like that didn't stop the whole family from staying tight together. If they're if now they've all returned and they're in a series of row houses, it sounds like you're a very <laughs> close knit family. Yes, yes, we are all close, and I'm very grateful. Now, Georgetown to the rest of your life. I know you said that you're in Atlanta now. Maybe you can take us on a bit of that journey. Um, one thing you said in some notes you wrote to me before we spoke today is that you were always in a hurry and in a yes. hurry to succeed, but why were you in such a hurry? I'm not really sure why. I just remember always wanting to be the first or the best at whatever it was I was trying to do. Maybe it was because I was the poor, neglected middle child. My mother will be upset if I say that out loud. I have an older sister and a younger brother. And my dad called me number two daughter. So I guess I was just trying to get some kind of attention. And, you know, some people will respond to that by getting negative attention. But I just wanted to get all A's and graduate first and have a great job. Did that make you want some people uh, want to go as far away as possible from home when that happens? They're in a hurry to leave. It just sounds like you were just in a hurry to to do something. Get things done. I've always kept a list and a five-year plan and I check things off my list and then I make a new one. I make New Year's resolutions for me and my family. And uh, I love checking things off my list. Right. Uh, did you have a, a list like that when you were really young, uh, when you were a kid and, and a dream that you were trying to pursue? Yes. And I've kept a list and I, I sent you some notes. I sort of kept a list of all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. It's mostly for me. I don't usually share that with people. Mm -hmm. um, I used to keep a list of all the nice things people would say to me, or you did a good job on this. And I kept a little file oh. in my drawer. And that way, if I had a bad day or something didn't work out, I'd pull out my little file and go, oh, this person appreciated me. I'm okay. And then I would move on. That is an extraordinary file. If you've kept that all these years, those people's <laughs> memories are with you. Throughout oh. your whole your whole life, um, that's pretty extraordinary. Well, I've um, made some great friends. I've had great people to work with and mm -hmm. for, and I've stayed in touch with many of them over the years. Now, but you did even if you weren't in a hurry to leave home, you were just in a hurry to to execute all those plans you had from the, from the earliest part of your life. Um, you did you did leave, so you went to school uh, right there in Kentucky initially. Maybe you I could, did. Yeah, I, tell us I never that. went out of town, but, mm -hmm. but when wow. I went to campus, I didn't have a car. I purposely did not go home between September and November. And my mother called me twice to see if I was alive. That was my effort at being on my own. And after that, I would take friends home with me on the weekend and do laundry and get good meals. Um, but I really wanted to be on my own. So I, I went ahead and graduated college early and I got an MBA all right there in Lexington. And then when I had an opportunity, I did move out of town. I wanted to be on my own. Now, you, you studied, um, uh, I guess you were studying hum, um, human resources in school. Is that right for your MBA? Yes, I, I got a business degree and then I got a master's in business and I specialized in HR. So my first job was in HR for a hotel that opened there in Lexington. And I loved it. I loved the whole process, the, the hiring and the firing and the benefits. Mm -hmm. I, I have some great stories from those days. I had a Housekeeper tried to beat me up one time. I had a pimp with a gun who came down to my office, which was in the basement, looking for one of the ladies who worked for him. It was very exciting for a young person to be in a job with that sort of responsibility and have those kinds of things happen. Okay. Well, you went right past the, this dangerous incident. So how did you talk your way out of the gun-toting pimp? Well, well, you can't see me, but um, I think. I have an honest face and I I knew that I had a list of employees that we updated once a week. So when he's waving his gun around under my nose, demanding to see this young woman, I knew we had hired her. Obviously, she didn't put her prior work experience on her resume or we might not have done that. But we had hired her. I knew exactly where she was in the hotel. I did not tell him that. I just said, look, here's a list of our employees. See, her name is not on here. 
but it was the the list from the week before. So he finally left. So what did she think about all this? Well, we did have to go and get her off the floor and bring her downstairs. And I don't think she worked there much longer after that. It was unfortunate for her um, trying to, to get out of those circumstances, but we couldn't have um, that, that kind of employee working in the hotel and in that capacity anyway. Well, but it does sound like everybody uh, was uh, safe and sound at least uh, for a time as a result of keeping a cool head. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so what attracted you to HR in the first place? Well, to go even farther back when I was in high school, I was in junior achievement. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know, know much about that organization, but it's for high school students who learn how to create a business and they have positions for CEO and finance and um, all the things you have in a business. And I served as the HR director for my business that we started. And I must have done a pretty good job. I got to go to the national um, JA conference and represent Lexington. And I loved it. So that's what gave me the idea I might want to pursue HR in the future. So I would recommend that nonprofit to anyone who whose children are trying to have a career business. Certainly it's been instrumental for a lot of people, but it doesn't always lead to wanting to run your own business, which maybe it was instrumental in your case, but I know we're going to go there, but first take us back to, again, you you've graduated, you've finished your MBA lickety split, then you're running off and you're leaving town. And where did you go? Well, the hotel business is great for transferring and promoting young people. Mm-hmm. So after I had been in my job as assistant director of HR in the hotel in Lexington, I was promoted after a year. I had finished my MBA and they sent me to be an HR director in Chicago. What was that like for you to go from where you were to Chicago? Well, it's quite eye opening. So for a young woman who had never seen much diversity in any way in, in my community, I was immersed. Uh, the hotel I worked in was in a Jewish community, mm-hmm. and I'm of the Christian faith, and we did not even have a Christmas tree in the hotel. I lived in a um, Polish neighborhood. Chicago has neighborhoods all around, and that's just happened to be the apartment that I got. My landlady was Hungarian and really wonderful to me. My general manager at the hotel was German, and I really had a hard time understanding his accent. It took me about a month to even understand what he was saying. But I was responsible for 300 employees, and half of them were Hispanic, and most of them did not speak English. So it, it was a very eye-opening. Uh, I got permission to hire an assistant to help me in the HR office. And I did not find anyone who was going to help me type and file and what you would normally think of as an assistant. I spoke, found someone who spoke Spanish because I didn't. Mm -hmm. And that's how she helped me to hire folks for all the positions. So we hired people, executives in three piece suits, and then we hired people who couldn't read or write or speak English. And all this is happening when you're pretty fresh minted out of your MBA. So you must have yes. been uh, early, early on in your in your professional, your personal life um, and, and doing all this, uh, being in a, a pretty big city, very diverse, as you said. What was that experience like for you? Did you I mean, did you thrive on it? Was it shocking? What how did it how did it strike you? Well, a, a couple of things happened, which made it work out for me. One, I was committed to doing this at least for a year. I really wanted to be on my own. And in seven and a half million people, I didn't know a soul. Mm -hmm. So my uncle put a phone number in my pocket the day I moved and got my car and drove to Chicago. And he said, if you ever need anything, call this man. I was in the service with him. So I'm in Chicago. I'm in the hotel. I'm working and looking at apartments. It was all very depressing and the weather was so cold. Um, I pulled out his phone number and called this man and he said, oh, you're 
you're Ed's niece. Tell me, where are you? And he lived one neighborhood away and he put his wife and daughter in the car and they drove straight over and took me to dinner. And the next day, his daughter helped me find an apartment and they were my friends Mm -hmm. going forward. And without that, I'm not sure how long I would have lasted. So I try to do that for people now. Um, I'm a volunteer at my college and that sort of thing. So when people move to Atlanta, I try to help them acclimate because people did that for me. There are good neighbors in the smallest places and the biggest places. And it sounds like you've really described Chicago right there with that story. Um, Well, I had a great time. I went to all the shows and all the museums. There was a parade every Saturday downtown. I am quite a tourist. So at the end of the year, I survived a really bad winter. Um, I figured I had done that enough. So my next move would have been to take a bigger job at another hotel property Mm -hmm. in the same chain. But I decided, you know what, I've done this. I'm checking this off my list and I quit my job without another one and moved home to Kentucky. Well, in fact, in some of the notes that you wrote to me before we began today, you actually said at, at some point, you just hated business. There was an aspect of it that you just didn't like. And of well, course, you've been in business in different ways throughout the years and, and nonprofits are a form of business, but there was something about this kind of work that you just had to leave. What was that? Well, part of my responsibility was to handle the benefits. And mm-hmm. we had not just benefits for the hotel management, but there were four different unions. And there was a huge disparity between the positions on what sort of benefits were available to the employees. And usually it was the ones least able to afford it that were charged the most or had the least access to benefits. And it really broke my heart. And also um, the hotels open every day, sort of a thankless job where as soon as you get stacked up, someone would leave or quit if you didn't have enough room sold and they would lay people off. And I always felt like it was the employees who suffered. And even though I'd gone to school for business, when I realized after a year or two what that was like, I decided I didn't really want to be in business, at least not in that in that way, in that field. So how did you make that transition over into the nonprofit world? Well, I always knew I wanted to work at my college. I worked on campus when I was a student. I knew all the staff and all the students. It was small. And before I left, they said, well, you need to go do something else for a couple years. And when you've done that, when you come back, we'll find a job for you. So the same president who signed my diploma hired me back. And when I came back, um, in fact, I, just, I told you I packed up my car and moved home from Chicago. And when I got home, I showed up at Transylvania. I didn't even look for other jobs. I said, well, I'm back what job do you have for me? (laughs) It didn't really matter to me what it was. I just wanted to be back on campus. Mm -hmm. That was my lifetime goal. And uh, they put me in admissions. And that was a lot of fun too. And and there must've been a kind of a connective tissue between HR work and admissions work. What, What did you find was the biggest connector for you? Well, it was all about the people. I had been uh, working in the admissions office as a student and given student tours. So I was accustomed to meeting families and showing them around. I really liked travel, even though it was quite a bit of travel. This is what we did. We would come in on the office on Sunday and pack up our bags, travel and visit schools Monday through Friday. And my territory was Central Kentucky, Tennessee, Indiana, Illinois, and half of Florida. And I visited all of those high schools. And then I would come back home on Friday night go to the office on Saturday morning because we had people come to campus to, for visits and then leave again on Sunday. So it was quite a commitment. My life revolved around that sort of work. And at the same time, I married my college boyfriend who oh. was there in Lexington. And he's another part of the reason that I moved home. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and when you get married, you don't really want to be traveling five days a week. So after a year or so of that, I said, well, is there something else I can do on campus? And that's when there was a job opening in development. And that started my lifelong career now in development. And I know you served as director of development there, I guess, between 1980 and 1985. So was that, did you step right into that role? 
I did not go straight into the director role. I started in annual giving. In fact, I had to fight for that job. At the time, they were not sure a woman could be in fundraising, which is Talk pretty ironic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was a long time ago, as you can see, because now 80% of the field is women. Right. So I did annual giving and uh, at, there was no vice president for development at the time. So I went to a neighboring college to see how they did development and took some great ideas from there. I went to case conferences. I ran all the phonathons. I was back on campus and very happy doing that. When the alumni director left, they gave me her job too. I ran all the special events on campus, including graduation and alumni weekend and parents weekend. And then I was promoted to director of development. And then I got to hire some help. I would have stayed there forever. If they, if, if we had not moved, if if you had not moved, well, before before you go there, I, you did talk about how much you 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 know you were so happy to return to your school. Not mm-hmm. everybody feels that way about their school. So what what was so special about Transylvania for you? I just liked everything about it. I remember the first time I went to campus, my father took me to open house. I think my mom was sick. She might have been in the hospital. She's fine. And she was fine right after that. So it was rare for my dad to take me to an event like that. And we were a little bit late because he took me after work and we showed up to go into the fine arts building. And there was this man coming out and he probably looked at my name tag or something, but he stopped and shook my hand and called me by name. And it turned out he was the president of the university. And I felt so special that this man called me by name and made me feel special. And I said, this is the place I want to be. And this is the kind of person I want to work for and with. And that's the kind of job I would like to have. Yeah, Yeah. Uh, there's so many things to think about there in the field that you then have devoted all these years to. I've never um, forgotten him. He was president for 22 years, maybe. Mm-hmm. And uh, we stayed in touch when he retired. Mm-hmm. Great man. But you said you did have to move. So I guess it was a spousal move, one of these things that you yes. decided to move to Atlanta. My wonderful husband is an architect. Mm-hmm. And he graduated after I did. And he needed a larger city. And right. I understand that. So we looked at different cities. I'd already tried Chicago and I knew I didn't want to go back there because of the weather. So when I was helping choose, I wanted something in the South. So Atlanta was on our list and Atlanta became our next home. And we agreed to come for one year. And every year on the anniversary of our move, I thought we were going back to Kentucky. Hmm. And it's been more than 30 years and I don't think we're going back. My children think we're from here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they were born there probably, weren't they? Yes. In Atlanta. So Atlanta is their hometown. But um, for those who are listening in on our conversation who are not from the South, where sometimes people group all those states together, but they all have their own unique individual personalities and histories and the towns do too. Um, Going from Lexington to Atlanta, that's a different place. So what was it like for you to go to Atlanta? Well, Atlanta, people are nice and the weather is nice. So that was a big um, thing in its favor in terms of comparing that with Chicago and mm-hmm. other options. If if Lexington wasn't going to be an option, then Atlanta, I, I was fine with Atlanta. And I found great work. Anytime you've had five years of development experience, you can find another job, especially if you've done a decent job. So I went to work immediately at Georgia Tech and mm-hmm. had a great five years there. And I couldn't have asked for a better opportunity for my own career. So even though we moved with my husband, it was great for him and for me and for our family. We have no regrets. And I know you had great success there professionally. You won a number of uh, case uh, medals while you were there. And and then you moved on to Emory, which of course is another highly distinguished institution where you served 
in a, in a senior role, um, again, then moving on to the Georgia Foundation for Independent Colleges. Um, as you moved through that career arc, what what really uh, sticks out to you is and maybe one of, one of the major learnings, one of the things that you started to see as uh, a, a consistent element rising up throughout your career that you've been able to apply throughout your work? Well, the rules for fundraising are the same no matter where you are. And I took what I learned at Transylvania and just used that over and over again in other institutions. Mm -hmm. So, for example, when I worked in development at Transylvania, my job was to go visit every donor who had given $100 or more. Mm. So when I was there, we only had about 8,000 alumni and probably half of them had made a gift and not all of them had given enough. But it was great to go out and visit these folks. When I got to Georgia Tech, my my boss says, you can't do that. You can't go visit anybody unless they give at least $1,000. So we just add a few zeros and we did the same task. But I would visit people in Atlanta and they'd given $1,000 and they would say, no one from Georgia Tech ever visited me before. Hmm. It is just such a, such a great experience for me and for them. And we were able to do, do some great things and increase the percentage giving and get people to give more because giving goes up after I would go make a visit. I tracked it over time, how much giving increases if you go thank people in person. And I know you've, you've written about this saying that uh, meetings are, as you just said a moment ago, so important uh, for yes. the, not just for the professional in that role representing an institution, but really for the donors and that you've never had a meeting that you thought was a bad meeting. You always took something from it. Can you talk to us a bit about why those are so important? And especially to those who are in our industry who think that much of that process might be able to be automated and that those meetings need to have a lot more zeros before we go on them. Well, we're also seeing that with COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm really missing those in-person meetings. In fact, one of my friends who knows I have all my meetings for my uh, my consulting work at the local coffee shop up the street. And when they drove by and saw that it was closed, they called me and they said, how are you doing? <laughs> they were worried about me not being able to go to the coffee shop during COVID. But um, I really love those meetings. I took meetings with donors and prospects, people who thought they wanted to be in development, people who wanted to work at Georgia Tech or whatever institution I was in at the time, I'd just say yes. And then they would show up and they may or may not be right for a position we had open. We might not have had any positions open, but that was before Facebook and LinkedIn and being able to communicate with people through social media. So that was how I communicated. I kept lots of notes and stayed in touch with people. I would give them career advice if they asked for it and stayed in touch. And that way, when I did have an opening, I always had a handful of people I could call and say, oh, we have an opening now. This would be great. So I was always able to fill the positions that I needed in my department very quickly because I had already done the hard work in front of it. And even with all the tools that we have at our disposal now to find people far away, people maybe we can't meet either because of geography or budgets or COVID, that there's a there's a unique value, isn't there, in meeting people face to face when that's possible? Oh, absolutely. You see body language, you get eye contact. Sometimes that's really hard to tell on Zoom. Mm-hmm. Um, people looking off in different directions. It's just not as personal. And I tend to remember people, names and faces once I've had that kind of conversation. And we talk like you and I are right now. It's a little bit more personal than if you're just doing a a Zoom meeting and something specific straight off their resume. And uh, when we're thinking about that from the recruitment perspective, but also the development perspective, why is that important to have that personal connection? I know it seems like an obvious question, but it's good to hear from someone who's done that a, a good number of years. Well, we haven't really talked about my business yet, but if we're helping organizations find and keep good development officers, we need to see how they meet people mm-hmm. and do they shake hands? Do they have good eye contact? 
Do you feel good when you talk to them? How do they follow up? Is there a thank you note? That kind of thing. Um, and, and you can't tell that in other ways or if we're all just emailing or texting. I just can't emphasize enough how important it is to me and that personal touch. I used to be able to say to my clients before COVID that we never present candidates that I haven't met them all personally on their behalf. I'm not going to give them candidates I wouldn't hire. It's a little more difficult now with COVID and everything being virtual. Right. Well, and and you're right. We we haven't talked about your current business yet. And just to make sure, for those who don't know you and your work, um, you did move from a uh, from those senior positions in development into serving as a senior consultant at one of the large firms, Alexander Haas Martin and Partners in Atlanta, and then back into the field. So it was another five-year stint. Five must be a magical number for you. You've said five a number of times in our conversation. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Well, you know, I'm really proud of having five years. If you assume the mm-hmm. average tenure of a development officer is 14 to 18 right. <laughs> months, then the fact I've stayed five years at every place I've worked, um, I think that's Pretty, pretty good. Oh, absolutely. In fact, maybe shed some light on that for us, because again, you've been on the inside and you've been in recruitment. Uh, You know this uh, from a number of perspectives. Why is it that these uh, tenures are so short? Well, uh, there's two reasons. One is an organization hires somebody and thinks they're going to raise all the money. And at the end of the year, If they did a good job, they're going to go down the street and make more money. The other option is at the end of the year, if they haven't raised enough money, then they're let go and someone else will be hired. So it's almost a lose-lose situation. And we see it happening over and over. So when we work with an organization to help them find their development officer, we never get hired first. Organizations always think they can do it. And it's only when they've tried and they can't find somebody or if they've had a bad hire and they know they can't afford to do it again, that's when they call us. So when we come in, Mm -hmm. we do a little analysis and figure out, well, what happened to that last person? And no matter what the organization says, many times we'll interview whoever left and find out the real reason why they might have left. And sometimes we have to train the board and teach them here's how you support the development officer. This is a team effort. It is not a one person job. Mm -hmm. And then we set the candidates up for success. So once they're hired, the organization um, knows how to treat them. So we recommend that our clients find the most most qualified development officer they can and then be nice to them. And that's the part they forget. They forget (laughs) that they have to continually let them know how much they appreciate it so they keep them. So our track record, when we hire people, we've been doing this now since 2013. In fact, now I've worked for myself longer than I've ever worked for anybody. It's still working. Um, our placements stay an average of 43 months, which is three oh. times longer. And we're really proud of that. Uh, I, I'm just still reeling from the idea that you have to tell people to be nice, but uh, I guess it, you obviously know that you need to do that. <laughs> it's just... Well, if you read the research on why people leave, at least why they say they leave it, it's not for money. Right. And, and it's not really for benefits. It's for who they get to work with and how they mm-hmm. feel. And I feel the same way right now. I have a little more flexibility and I get to help choose who I work with every day. And it's right. wonderful. <sighs> Well, and I know we're jumping way ahead. You've done many things, but the business you're describing right now is our fundraising search, right? Yes. Which you founded and you yes. own. And you've been doing that work since 2013 under that umbrella. Yes. Uh, I, and how did you decide to form the firm initially? What need were you trying to serve both for your customers, of course, in the sector, but also just personally, why make that move? Well, all the jobs that I've had in my career, I have loved, and I've never really left one on purpose. There was just some new opportunity that popped up. So I was working at a large consulting firm you named already. And while I was there, my boss said, I know you have a background in HR 
and our clients are having trouble finding and keeping good development officers, can you help them? Will you do their searches just for our clients? And I said, sure. I'm always up for a new challenge. So the goal was for me to do five searches over the course of a year, in addition to running campaigns. And in 10 months, I had done 10 searches. Oh, wow. That's what I said. <laughs> like somebody needs to be doing this. Mm-hmm. There is a need. Nobody else was doing that. But my boss didn't really want us to be in the search business, but he didn't care if I did. So I didn't really have a business plan. I just had an idea that I called on all that experience I'd had before. And I remembered all the people I've hired before. And I just thought it would be possible. So we started, I started our fundraising search, January 1, 2013, and said, we're going to do this. And my husband Mm -hmm. was a little bit skeptical. He thought I should get a real job. And at the end of the first year, when I showed him what happened and how well things had gone, he went, oh, okay then. (laughs) You were obviously serving a need, but but in truth, there are other executive recruiters and uh, and headhunters out there. And some are quite large firms that dabble, if you will, in the nonprofit sector. But clearly you were serving a need. So what. What is it, I mean, without beating up on the competition, why is it that there's still a need for this? I mean, it, it seems like with, with so much talent in the field and so much need among institutions and people like yourself with the experience to guide right people to the right jobs, that there is definitely still a need to do what you do. What, what, why is it that need isn't being fulfilled by these humongous agencies out there? Well, you know, I did my homework. I went and visited with one of my favorite executive search firms here in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And I talked to them about their work and I pitched my idea focused on development. And I tend to work with small to medium sized nonprofits. And many of them don't even have an HR department. Mm-hmm. And they certainly don't know how to hire development. They're trying to keep things together. So I really don't see it as competition. If it is, there's plenty of work for all of us. There's 5,700 nonprofits just in Atlanta, and we've worked with about 200. So I have lots of opportunity there. Mm -hmm. But the executive search firm does CEOs and large organizations and high fees, and they charge usually a third of the first year salary. My clients can't afford that. So I'm filling a niche, a, a different level, so to speak, and they refer people to me and I refer people to them. Right. It's, it's a happy arrangement. As far as I know, there was no one who does just what I do. And I meet with people all the time who think they want to be a consultant or they'd like to start their own business. And I'll tell them my experience. And I think the key is to find something to do well that nobody else is doing. So even though I thought I was in the search business, I might interview 30 people, one of them gets hired, one of them, um, you know, the organization is happy and that one person is happy. We stay in touch with the other 29 people and I try to help them find something else. And I don't get paid by the individual, I get paid by an organization. But the fact that I've already interviewed 29 people sets me up for the next search. And we have about 1200 resumes on any given day so if you were to say to me, I need a development officer with three years experience in the healthcare field, I probably have some for you. So just the fact we've been doing this for a while is helpful. And because I've worked in all the sectors and done all the jobs I've had, I've actually done the job. Yeah. There are some consultants or some recruiters who haven't served in the role and they may or may not know exactly what the organization is looking for. We do. What's most rewarding about this for you at this point? Well, I like the newness of it. There's always new clients, new prospects, new people to me. And search has become only half of our business. I thought I was in the search business. Once we've gotten to know an organization and met their board, we might come back and teach the board how to raise money. We can help with a development assessment. We can coach a junior development officer if they need it. The organizations invite us back to do their capital campaigns and their endowment campaigns. It is not unusual for us to do multiple engagements with the same organization. 
This year we hired their major gift officer. Next year we might hire their annual fund person. And they come back to us year after year because we know them and we know them well. And those 29 people that I told you about that I stay in touch with, even if I don't have anything to do with them getting a job, when they do and they're in their new nonprofit, when they need a consultant for fundraising, they remember that we were nice to them when they were in a time that they were struggling and looking for a job. And what they remember, we were nice to them and they call us. So that's our marketing plan. It's word of mouth and it's working for us. It must be a different experience also for the people that you're talking to, the institutions that have that need and the candidates from what they're experiencing in the rest of the sector. I hear so many stories about people submitting resumes and never hearing from people yes. to whom they've submitted or uh, people who are trying to hire employees and being ghosted, as they say, by mm -hmm. prospective employees, um, especially the kinds of difficulty now um, in the middle of uh, the, the pandemic and much of the conversations being held, uh, especially when they don't have uh, people like yourself guiding them through that process uh, with such care. These meetings are often held virtually and all those things we talked about in development being so important, personalized, yeah. um, all the things that, you know, if you're sitting with someone in person, that those are absent. And this may be the only meeting you have, and it's only 30 to 45 minutes to determine, is this person a suitable candidate? It, it, I wonder, is the need as a result of this entire environment we're in, the technical environment and the health environment, making this need even greater? Well, I think so. And, and having that personal touch is critical, even, even during COVID. We do two things for our clients that you, you might not realize if you haven't done a search for us. We think that whole ghosting at the end is deplorable, and it happens so many times. So what we do for our clients is we want to ha handle the total search. We don't want to just refer candidates. We never know what happens. So we will agree to the job description and the salary, post the jobs, and do everything for them. And if there's internal candidates or board member children, we communicate with the client and say, how do you want us to handle these? Do you want to hire this person or should we just be extra nice to them? We will interview them, make them feel special so that no one's upset at the end. Then at the very end, when somebody's selected and hired, we get back in touch with everybody and we let them know what happened. So our goal is that everybody understand, here's the person that was hired and here's why they're qualified and why they were chosen. And people go, oh, I get that. I, I see why you would hire them. But then we make the effort not just to let them know what happened, but help them find what they want. Mm -hmm. So every time I interview anybody, I always ask them one question. Is if you could work anywhere, where is that? And then I listen carefully to what they say. And if they are interviewing for a job in healthcare and they tell me they want to work with animals, I stop the whole process. I'm like, well, let's go get that job for you. Let's don't talk about this one. We want people, you know, we all spend too much time at work not to be enjoying what we're doing. And there's plenty of jobs out there. It's making the match. And that's what we try to do is match up the right prospect with the right organization or the right candidate. It's just like fundraising, like staffing. And it sounds like that's keeping your juices flowing because you've been doing this for more than your magical five years, but you're, you're still that, that uh, person in a hurry. So where are you hurrying to now besides the, the work you're doing through the firm, making all these great connections so that people find meaningful as well as gainful employment, organizations have great staff carrying on the mission work. What What's driving you personally? Where are you going as you continue your own personal evolution in a hurry? One of the things I like being in my own boss is I get to almost pick and choose which clients that I work with. And it was after I'd been doing this for a while and I got sick one day and I had to miss a meeting with a client and I was horrified. I'd never missed a meeting. And then I went, oh, wait, what if I did get sick? What should I do? So that's when I knew I had to hire some extra people to help me. Mm -hmm. So I have built a team. 
I would tend to hire people I've worked with. They've been my client, so they know how I run a campaign or how I do a search, and they've benefited from that. And this summer, we had seven people engaged, including an intern. We're trying to build a diverse team. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have a lot of fun together. We care about each other. Everybody works on a 1099, so we split fees in a fair way, and we're all engaged. The first few people I hired were moms who had small children and didn't want to work full time. That's fine with me. As long as you get your work done, you just have fewer clients. So even though I thought I was going to do this all on my own, I really enjoyed building this team and sharing. I also have always wanted to write a book. So I've accidentally written five and we have a new one coming out in November. There's always something new to write about and do. And what happened with our business during COVID, at at the beginning of COVID, when everything shut down, I was a little bit worried. Like what what happens usually with a nonprofit is in bad times and they can't hit their budget, they cut the consultant first, even though fundraising is important. So some of our campaigns went on hold, but we switched to coaching because our clients still needed some help and they still needed to raise money. We added strategic planning. Because if nonprofits had a strategic plan before COVID, they probably needed to revise it. We added grant writing because our clients ask for it. Basically, we do whatever our clients need. And now, not only do we have more staff, we have 21 different services. We are not just search anymore. And you've taken that time, though, to write those books. I know that a number of them, you have five now. A number of them were those the the things you need to know books in different parts of our sector right i mean very important critical primers and then you've also just done this work recently which it sounds like it's pretty close to your heart um with a children's book and now a game so talk about that a little bit well every time i've written something it was because the client needed it. So I do a lot of work with independent schools because when my kids were in school, I worked at their school as the chief development officer. So my network was headmasters and other independent schools. So as I was seeking clients, I kept going around and visiting with headmasters and I kept repeating myself. So I wrote it all down for them. And then I had a friend of mine edit it. So it looked good, sounded good. And then I accidentally got a publisher. So my first book was fundraising for schools. And then I took the same how-to model and wrote fundraising for museums because I didn't think there was enough resources in the arts area. I worked as the chief development officer at the High Museum, and that was a whole different network. And then another friend of mine were watching what's happening with giving. Most people, if they're going to give, they give to their religion and I'm watching church giving declining. So our theory was that churches need to raise money like other nonprofits and they probably need to have somebody on the staff devoted to it, even if it's part time. So we wrote a book and did an online course on fundraising for churches. So that's how all those came about. But my favorite project I've ever done is called The Adventures of Phil and Thropy, and it's spelled philanthropy, but it's about three little children, Phil, Anne, and Thropy. And with that book, we teach kids about giving. So why? Why is that important to you? Well, the way that came about, I was with my great nieces. My boys are grown, but I don't have any grandchildren yet. So until then, I can spoil my great nieces and nephews. So my five and nine-year-old great nieces said, Aunt Linda, will you give money to my school? I said, sure. How much do you need? Oh, I don't know. I said, well, what's it for? Oh, I don't know. I mean, okay, get right up here. So in about five minutes, I taught them how to raise money. And as I'm driving home from visiting with them, I thought, you know what? We should teach all kids how to raise money. They need to know this whether they're raising money for their school or some other cause. So I looked around and there were no books. There's nothing. Now there's books on service, but nothing on giving money and giving back. So a couple of my colleagues and I wrote it. My, my uh, son 
One of my sons did the art. The other one helped me with marketing. And we did a children's book to teach kids about giving back. And I've used it in so many ways. Our local AFP chapter uses it every fall. All the fundraisers in town go into City of Atlanta Public Schools. And we read this book. And then we do an art project. And then we celebrate with them at National Philanthropy Day. So I think it's our responsibility as fundraisers to teach children and families about how they can contribute. We talk a lot about this in the field, about where people get that charitable impulse. Uh, and many people will point back to their parents or some experience they had in childhood with a church, synagogue, a mosque, or you know, some charitable organization. They're all different sorts of things. We talked about your early life in Georgetown and the horses, but I never asked you about your parents, what they did and what impression they made on you, especially as it relates to the work you do today. Do you see something tying that time to this time? Well, my parents contributed to our church. My father worked for the school system in data processing. Um, he was not college educated. My mom was a teacher, but she was home with us when we were young. Um, she would be the substitute. Sometimes we'd see her at school. And then my sister was a teacher. And I think most people thought I was going to go to the same college they went to and be a teacher. So I was all about doing something different. I was going to go somewhere else and do something different. My first real philanthropic experience was when I was president of student council at my high school. We collected canned goods at Thanksgiving, which most schools do. But I got to deliver, I got to help deliver the canned goods that we had gathered. And that was the most meaningful experience of the whole process when I got to see the families that wouldn't have had a Thanksgiving meal if we hadn't brought the turkey and the trimming. It was very powerful. I've never forgotten how that made me feel. And we have exposed our own children to those type of experiences and giving back and missions and service to the things that we give to. Thank you so much for this, Linda. It's really been a pleasure talking with you about, about uh, everything you've done and been doing and are doing today and the contribution you're trying to make to make sure other kids follow follow that example in philanthropy too as well. Well, it has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me and let me share with you. The Philanthropy Masterminds podcast is underwritten by DonorSearch, the world leader in donor intelligence solutions. Our producer is Jack Frost. Our theme music is Be My Remedy, composed and performed by House of Say. You can subscribe to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find blogs, webcasts, and CFRE accredited webinars with our featured masterminds at DonorSearch.net or check the show notes and descriptions. 